Hi, I'm Katrina Daniel, and welcome to Primetime Crime, a podcast for people who want to know what goes on behind the scenes of the most notorious trending crime stories and what's going on in the minds of those involved in those stories. What are the detectives, the judges, the defense attorneys, and the prosecutors thinking? You'll hear it all on Primetime Crime, the podcast. Hi, I'm Katrina Daniel, and welcome to this edition of Primetime Crime. So the beautiful city of Nashville got a nasty surprise this Christmas. A whack job parked his old RV in front of the historical buildings downtown and blew himself up, injuring three others, causing irreparable damage to some irreplaceable buildings, and more importantly, knocking out vital communication services like 911 because he parked in front of the AT&T building. The whack job's name was Anthony Quinn Warner, the usual quiet, kept-to-himself personality description. Just days before he did this, he told a neighbor, quote, Nashville and the world are going to remember him forever, unquote. So to dishonor his wishes, we'll call him just another whack job. The reporters and staff of the Tennessee Lookout have been on the ground on this story from the moment it happened. And here to share with us much of the as-yet-untold story is Editor-in-Chief Holly McCall. Here's what we know. There does seem to be a desire um, to warn people ahead of time, uh, something that was a hallmark of, for example, early IRA bombings. Um, But the site itself seems significant. It's on the edge of Nashville's famous hospitality and tourist district, but the area was nearly empty, especially that hour on Christmas morning. So do you think the plan was to detonate this bomb later in the day, or was the message designed to warn people to leave the area and therefore might speak to a, a more conflictive motive on the part of the person who did the bombing? We can't really say whether or not it was uh, intended to detonate later in the day. We just don't know that yet. But certainly the time it did detonate uh, is consistent with this apparent effort to minimize casualties by Mm. putting out a warning saying that the device is going to go off. So all those things would lead you to believe that maybe they weren't looking to cause uh, mass, you know, civilian or innocent casualties. However, the other side of that coin is this was a massive explosive device deployed to a public place and detonated in a public place. That's not your typical scenario for a suicide or someone who's upset about their lot in life and and deciding uh, to kill themselves. So it is by definition a very public, destructive, potentially violent event. So you have to keep open the possibility that um, this person must have been trying to send some sort of message here. We just really don't know what that is yet. It's my great pleasure to welcome Holly McCall, who is the editor-in-chief of the Tennessee Lookout. They've been on the ground since before the bombing took place. So, Holly, thanks for joining us. I am so happy to be here with you today, Katrina. Talk to us about something we were discussing just before we started recording, the atmosphere in Nashville and the damage that was done to the psyche of the people, if indeed that's true. Well, yes, I do I do think it damaged the psyche of the people. So obviously 2020 has not been a great year for many Americans uh, with the COVID-19 alone. Tennessee 
started our year, there was a, a devastating tornado. Tennessee's had two devastating tornadoes this year. Nashville had one on March 3rd. No, I'm sorry. It was March 1st. It was the same day as Super Tuesday. That, that like pretty much wiped out two parts of town, North Nashville, which is a historically black area, and East Nashville, which is trendy, good restaurants, touristy. So this happens Then we have COVID shuts down businesses. I would also point out that sadly, Tennessee has one of the highest uh, COVID rates in the nation now. I believe this week we're number three, but we've been, yay, we've been number one for the last couple of weeks. And then Christmas morning, you know, we get up and find that somebody has bombed a historic block of downtown Nashville. It is in the tourist district. It is not the most touristy block. That's a couple of blocks away, but there's still restaurants that have been there for 40 years. Some of these buildings were built around the time of the Civil War. They're three-story old brick warehouses, and they're demolished. There's at least one that will will not be able to be re- rehabilitated. It just collapsed. That's really sad, and, and I guess the only small positive thing is that no one was killed. So right now, everybody's kind of just blowing it off. Oh, well, three people were injured, but... They were injured and they're going to have hospital bills and families affected as well. You know, it is a small blessing. I mean, it is a blessing that three people, that only three people were injured and no one was killed. Um, I mean, it is a, it's a bizarre case. We of course don't have all the facts on why he chose exactly where he did. It's, you know, speculated that he parked right next to an AT&T infrastructure building it's a very nondescript brick building. I had somebody say it's the best kept secret in Nashville. It's been there for 50 years. Um, and of course, when he, you know, by parking there and setting this bomb off, he knocked out 911 service all across the state, up into Kentucky. People are still just getting their AT&T service back, their phone, their internet, businesses for several days, or having to take cash only. Um, so that's the assumption because, of course, now, as you know, Katrina, there's more coming out about him, uh, more he was into conspiracy theories, aliens. Apparently, he was going to a local park looking for mutant alien lizard people. Uh, so, yeah, we're still learning about him, but it's a pretty bizarre case. Today, well, recently, the news is that a woman who says she was his girlfriend, her name is Pamela Perry, she tells police and she tells the media that about a, what, a year ago, at least last year, she alerted national police, who in turn alerted the FBI to the fact that he was making bombs in his RV. Uh, what action, if any, did they take? Well, you know, there's some there's great outrage in Nashville about this because for five days we heard that You know, the only rap he had was a felony drug case in 1978. Uh, A representative for the FBI local office said, oh, he was not on our radar. And then it emerges in the media that, in fact, his girlfriend had called Metro Police, local police, in August of 2019 and literally said he is building bombs in his RV, this being the same RV that went off. Metro Police did go to his house. They knocked on the door. He didn't answer. They referred it to the FBI. No other action was taken. Uh, The police report is now online. It's easy to see. And as you might imagine, like, first of all, there are people saying, oh, my God, two law enforcement agencies knew about it and didn't do anything. Then there's another group of people who are saying not only did they not know about it, but for the last five days or six days or however long, for a number of days, they've been saying, oh, we didn't know anything about this guy. And then you've got, there are 
some social justice components that come into it. You know, there was an incident in Nashville several months ago in which police broke into a woman's apartment in public housing. Now, it wasn't like Louisville with a Breonna Taylor. She did not get shot, but she was sleeping naked. Yes. She had several children there with her. And so there are people who are saying, so it's okay for cops to break into, like have a no-knock warrant, bust in on a black woman in public housing. And yet there's a white guy in a middle-class neighborhood. His girlfriend says he has bombs. She's sitting on his front porch with two guns saying he has these guns. He doesn't need them. They knock on the door and they leave. So many, many questions and a lot of outrage today. So the Nashville Police Department has, what would you say, a really black eye? Yes, for the last, uh, you know, ever since this happened, and they, they did comport themselves, they have comported themselves very well through this investigation since the bomb. And if you look at the um, body camera video of the day of the bomb, remarkably calm. And yes, I know they're trained to be calm, but I got to tell you, I'm not sure there are any circumstances under which I could be trained to be that calm. But to look at the past and see what has happened, uh, they are definitely the goat today and not the hero. Do you see any changes being made there? In the Nashville PD? Well, that's thank you for bringing that up. As a matter of fact, uh, Nashville recently did get a new police chief. Uh, the last one, a fellow named Steve Anderson, had been the chief for about 10 years. He had announced about a year ago he was going to retire, and his retirement got moved up. I'm not sure if that was on his own or if he got a little push in the back from our mayor, John Cooper. Uh, but, you know... <laughs> I think he got the final push because these masks, we don't have a statewide mask mandate. And Nashville had said that back in the summer, they would start ticketing people who weren't wearing masks. And so the first person they ticketed and arrested was a homeless black man. Um, so anyway, that hastened his departure. There is a new chief. It is somebody who has been in the department for a number of years. His name is John Drake. Um, you know, depending on who you talk to, he's great or the jury is out. But I think just having some change in and somebody different from the person who is in charge, um, I think that's helpful. But there are going to be some hard questions asked. Let's go back to the whack job that set off the RV, um, who shall remain nameless because... He wanted to be named, so we'll just call him the whack job. That's fine. Um, yeah, you know, in, in retrospect, you know, at first it seemed like there was nothing known about him. And then we learned that he told a neighbor, Nashville's never going to forget me. And that was just, you know, a week or so before the bombing. Like his neighbor said, hey, have a good Christmas. And he said, Nashville and the world is never going to forget me. You know, I'm pretty sure the world is going to forget him pretty soon. Um, you know, Nashville is not going to forget him quite yet, but not in the way that he wanted to be known. And again, since you referred to him as the whack job, uh, you know, the whole thing, like he, he didn't seem to want to kill anybody. He parked this RV at, like I said, one of the less traveled areas at 630 in the morning when they were not, he parked it at 122. The bomb went off at 630 in the morning, but there are not a lot of people out. You can look at the body camera footage and see there's nobody on the streets. He had this digitized voice warning people away. And then he plays Petula Clark's downtown. Which is a great song, you know, I'm 56. My mother used to sing that Fixing Breakfast when I was a kid. I love that song. You know, now it's going to creep people out in Nashville if they even know, if they even knew it. But, you know, so people are saying, was he lonely? And if he was lonely, you know, I'm lonely. I don't blow bombs up. And then this news comes out 
a couple of days ago as well that I think I mentioned earlier on that he was not just a conspiracy theorist, but he was pursuing theories about alien life forms and lizard people. So, I mean, honestly, anybody who blows up an RV in a city is disturbed. We just don't know exactly what his level and type of disturbance was. So what possible motives are being discussed, Holly? So the most prevalent one, and I think probably the soundest one, is the 5G. Listen, I know you, I know you all have heard, and actually Anita Wadwani, a senior reporter with our outlet, had done a story maybe a month ago about 5G cell towers in Tennessee that are being vandalized. Um, there are people who think that they cause COVID, that 5G causes COVID-19. There are people who think that uh, 5G cause, you know, destroys immunity. Um, in his case, his father worked for AT&T. He parked next to an AT&T building. You know, there are some neighbors and folks who say that they had heard him uh, speculate about 5G. So that is probably the strongest uh, speculation about why he did this. Did he have any mental issues in the past that it, that that have come out now? Because as you say, things are coming out every day as people do deeper, deeper dive searches. We have not heard anything. We have not heard if he went to therapy, counseling, um, you know, have not heard about him uh, spending any time, you know, in an institution. Again, that could still come out. But it seems like he was flying under the radar until this or until August of 2019 when his girlfriend called the cops. How did he make a living? I mean, how'd this guy exist? He did computer IT. Ah. You know, had a number of clients. He worked for a Mayflower moving company in Nashville. Um, And apparently he stayed with the people who owned that company for several weeks in the fall. I don't know that this has been reported yet. Um, But yeah, he stayed with them for several weeks. And when he left, he left a packet of information with them and a thumb drive that they've turned over to the FBI. Of course, I said, I'm nosy. I'm so nosy. Like, why didn't they look at that right away? I would have opened it and put the thumb drive in. Um, he worked for a very prominent real estate company here. And the owner of that real estate firm said, you know, like proactively called the police and said he worked for us. And I'm stunned. Like he just seemed very calm, pleasant, maybe a little nerdy. Uh, yeah. But I mean, just like you never think you just never think somebody's going to do this. We all know people who are quiet, nerdy, odd. Most of them do not detonate an RV bomb on Christmas Day. With themselves in it. With Yes, with themselves in it. Did he also take out his dog in that? You know, I think the dogs, from what I can tell, his pets were all deceased, predeceased him. So I okay. don't know. That, uh, uh, now, you might have heard something different. And if the dog, if there was a dog in there, I feel very bad for the dog. What, if any information, do you have on Pamela Perry, the, the alleged girlfriend? You know what? We have heard zero about her so far, other than this you know, news that just came out a few days ago about her calling in this report. Now, you know, he also quick claimed a house to a woman in California. And that's another interesting thing. Her name, well, I don't want to name her. Her name's out there, but yeah, I don't know her. None of us know now what her connection to him is. He quit claimed a house to her. She quit claimed it back to his mother. He and his mother had been in legal disputes over property. So now the mother has the house. She's not talking publicly. One can't blame her. I know there are media outlets who have reached out to this woman in California who's in the entertainment industry. She's maybe 30-ish, I think. Um, 
Her name doesn't match up with his, no last name. Nobody knows what the connection is. She has said she's talking to the FBI. So I'm sure we'll learn more about that. But that's another, they're just all these odd little twists that don't add up. If you look at the age progression, she could be his daughter from years ago. She could be. And, and maybe they found each other through DNA or and she didn't know or he knew. But that's just just, just a silly theory that I have. It's not, it is not a silly theory. I had not thought about that. Hmm. Okay. We just did an interview uh, regarding DNA and how it's been helping people find long lost relatives and criminals. And there is a group of all females in Southern Florida that a DNA group that we interviewed and they have just perfected a way to get fingerprints off bullet casings. Wow. Before this, uh, before their discovery, their, um, their research not been possible. So fascinating. It is. I would love to listen. I'm fascinated by true crime. so I'm so excited to be on this podcast. And so, you know, since we are talking, I'm going to add, there were a couple of little twists that came out, just interesting, interesting coincidences uh, that we, that we wrote about. So this happened on Christmas day in 1961, the Maxwell house hotel for which Maxwell house coffee is named. It was, you know, very fancy hotel at the time. The Maxwell house hotel only two blocks away from the bomb site burned down on Christmas day. And in the mid eighties on that, also on that same block of second Avenue in downtown Nashville, another historic building burned down Christmas Eve. So, you know, I'm sure like somebody could probably could cook up some conspiracy theories with that. I just think it's an interesting coincidence. Remind me not to be in Nashville on Christmas downtown. Okay. Stay away. Stay, stay home. What do you think is going to happen next in this case? What's, what's your guess? Well, you know, there are a number of different things that could happen. Um, you know, I think for the next foreseeable few days, at least, uh, the law enforcement agencies are going to be doing some splaining, as uh, Desi Arnaz used to say to Ricky, they got some splaining to do. Um, the legislature, the state legislature, Tennessee General Assembly is already talking about doing hearings on cybersecurity. Um, and then, you know, in Nashville, Metro, the Metro Nashville Codes Department has not even been able to get into these buildings to assess the damage. You can look at them, and we have a fantastic photographer, John Partipilo, who took a shot of the damage um, You know, early on. Our mayor, I think, was probably in a bit of shock himself, but he said, well, there's glass blown out. It looks like a bomb went off. Our photographer, John Partipilo, got this wide-angle shot that shows how devastated that block looks. It looks like Beirut and not Nashville. And so we're still waiting to see like when Metro officials can get in and assess what can be saved, what can't be saved. Um, I mean, there's very little at this point, the bombers blown up, there's nobody to prosecute. So it's going to be, I think the onus now is on the law enforcement agencies to explain why they did not take more action. Then they're going to be on the defensive legislature is going to do these hearings probably on cybersecurity is clearly an issue when one building you know, knocking out one building can knock out, you know, so much, so much connectivity across several states. And potentially cost people their lives if 911 calling isn't available. Exactly. You know, there were hospitals in this area that had no computer service. And again, given that Tennessee is the epicenter of COVID cases right now, there's not, there's never a good time to knock out hospital computers, but there's not a worse time than there is right now. Do you think he knew that that would be an effect? 
You know, it's it's hard to get into the mind of a deranged person, but I would guess since he said the world in Nashville would not forget him, I would guess he wanted to do as much damage as possible. However, because, that turned out. And because yeah. he was an IT guy, you know, it wasn't I mean, like, oh, I'm just going to park in front of the 7-Eleven. Right. He, he's not, he was not a stupid person, clearly. And, you know, there's another AT&T, there are two AT&T buildings within a couple of blocks of each other. One is more the management and administrative building. It's known locally as the Batman building because it's got these two peaks on it. And, and frankly, Nashville feels like Gotham City these days. But he didn't park in front of that AT&T building. He clearly knew to park in front of the building where all the computers were housed. I, ha- I, have, I have a question. Uh, we think that he didn't want to hurt anyone. However, there was a hostel located right in that area that the police helped to uh, get everybody out. What's the theory behind him not wanting to hurt anyone? I mean, other than the fact that he did it at a certain hour and it was not a highly populated area, but there were people there. And you can hear screaming in one of the videos. Yes. So, I mean, I think the theory is a time of day and B, you know, he did have this warning that was brought casting out saying, stay away from this vehicle. There is a bomb in it. But that's an excellent question, Carmen, because honestly, there is no time of day unless you park in the middle of the field in the middle of nowhere that you don't risk killing somebody. And I don't know like how this guy was smart. I don't know how much he knows about physics, bomb blast, but there are a number of hotels in the area within a block or two. There are a number of apartments in addition to the hostel. So I think we're, it's just some, um, it's damn good luck that nobody was killed. Joining us now is defense attorney Michael Rosen, who, in the interests of full disclosure, is also my husband and has been sitting here saying, ask her this, ask her that. So he's going to come here and ask um, Holly McCall some of the questions that, that I neglected to ask. Ask away, Michael. Uh, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So the question I wanted to ask is where the RV was located. Uh, My background as a criminal defense lawyer is holding the police feet to the fire and making sure they follow the law. And I understand that there's been quite a dust up over whether or not they should have gone in and searched that vehicle. Um, So one of the critical factors of an RV, because it's such an unusual thing, is it can be either a home or a vehicle because the Fourth Amendment laws on RVs are different because if mm-hmm. it's a home, then there are higher standards of, of proof necessary to enter a home as compared to a vehicle that's on the road. And I don't know that people realize that, but it's true. So he was not living in it. And I appreciate you um, talking about that. I did not know. Is Fourth Amendment search and seizure? Yes, ma'am. So he was not living in the RV. He uh, owned a brick duplex, two-story duplex townhouse in a suburb of Nashville called Antioch. The RV had been parked on the street in front of his house for some time. And apparently a few months ago, he pulled the RV into a fence around his house, put up no trespassing signs. I'm not positive where the RV was when the police went there. It may have been parked inside the fence. Um, If you look at his property on Google Maps, the RV is parked inside the fenced area of his yard. So, so here's just a little dissertation on Fourth Amendment law. Uh, and interestingly enough, Fourth Amendment law is really driven by the f- facts of each case. That's one of the interesting aspects to it. So every search is a function of what was really going on at the time. 
So I, I'm not going to pretend to know what was going on at the time. I, I know what's been in the media and, 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 and that's about it. But just to sort of educate listeners a little bit. Um, and, you know, anonymous tips are really not enough to warrant a, a justifiable search. And Katrina was asking me this morning, which is what got me in trouble here and now I'm on the air, is why did they just go knock down the door and go, go in there and find everything? And I said, you know, and she said, as a criminal defense lawyer, what do you think? And I said, I think that my job is to hold the police's feet to the fire and make them not enter homes without probable cause. And, you know, your earlier comment about, uh, you know, going into this woman's house and, and you know, yeah. I didn't know about that. But, I mean, that's obviously another problem and a big issue. Uh, but I'm just going to focus on the RV aspect of it for a moment. So if an anonymous tip, let's say somebody called the police and said, I'm not going to tell you who I am. I'm not going to tell you where I live, but I think this guy's making bombs in his. Go ahead. She said she was his girlfriend. I'm getting there. Okay. All right. Let me do my job here. Uh, don't cut that out. All right. So, um, so as compared to a girlfriend who therefore has identification, who therefore has knowledge, because presumably the police would have said to her, have you been in that RV? What did you see? Why are you saying that? If her response was, well, that's what he told me, that may not be enough. And, you know, and, and quite frankly, I want them to follow the law despite what happened here. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking about my invitation to speak this morning. I was thinking about the, the few cases where somebody gets off in a way, gets off of a criminal charge because the police didn't follow the law. Let's think about Mr. Miranda for a moment. All right. So, so if the police had entered this vehicle, this RV, and they were breaking the law by doing so, then, then they would not have been able to prosecute and convict this guy. So maybe they were right in not doing that. Now, does that mean they shouldn't have set up surveillance? Does that mean that, that, that they should not have gone by and seen the fact that the RV had now been moved into the curtilage and was now a fence around it? And a big sign that says, making bombs inside, don't, don't enter, right? I mean, those are things, every case is different based upon the facts. So I think that one of the distinguishing features to me is the fact that it was a girlfriend, the fact that she may have seen, and if that's true, uh, either they, she didn't give them enough information or the police failed to do their job. But again, if it's a mobile on the street, it's, it's one issue. If it's parked in the house, it's another. And even... If it's in the curtilage and inside the fencing, it becomes a different set of circumstances. So I guess my point is all these things add into the decision of the police whether or not they should have gone in or not. Uh, I'm sure in hindsight, they certainly wish they had. Well, uh, this is fascinating. And I'm going to share this podcast with everybody I know in Nashville because, you know, social media. available for hire even in Nashville, just so you know. (laughs) Well, you know what? We always need good criminal defense attorneys here. (laughs) I mean, social media is brutal. And, you know, people are popping off on Twitter since this happened about who did what and who should have done what. And and honestly, there is a lot to consider. And I appreciate that you said, you know, we want the police to follow the law. Because I think I don't know any people who want don't want the police to follow the law. There are folks who feel like it's not pursued fairly, but also many people don't understand the the ramifications of, for instance, Fourth Amendment search and seizure laws. So I appreciate you, you know, bringing that up. And honestly, at this point, I'm like, it, it's kind of a moot point. 
it's kind of a moot point because he he did set the bomb off. He's dead. You can second guess what happened. And yes, a year and a half ago, maybe they could have prevented this, but you, you know, know it doesn't. Point, uh, I'm going to disagree with you on one point. It's not a moot point because what happens in this case is the standard for what happens the next time. Okay. Every I mean, when I fight a case in court, when I wake up in the morning, I'm thinking, okay. What can I do today to keep my government in check? So any case I win means that the next case, they're going to have to follow what I just did. Um, so it sets precedent. Yeah, I mean, I'm that little grain of sand, but, you know, I want to rub them a little bit and irritate them. It's my job. So, so the other thing I will say, just to finish my little Fourth Amendment dissertation, is so what's the law? Okay, what does probable cause mean? And it means is there a reason to believe that a crime is being committed at that location? That's it. Okay, mm. it's, not, it's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It's a very reduced standard. I don't want to say low, but it's reduced. Is there a reason to believe? And that's why all the facts get layered into every case on Fourth Amendment search. So was there enough reason to believe? I'll leave that for all the pundits out there, but that's the criteria. Blessings. Have a nice day, everybody. Y'all are a fascinating couple. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a history there. <laughs> we'll save that for the next podcast or for offline. <laughs> I'm sure we'll be talking to you about this again because it's really been fun and interesting, which is a bad thing to say about a bombing, but thank God no one is dead. Well, yes, thank God no one is dead. It is interesting, although we hope to not be interested this way again anytime in the near future. Yeah. Good luck to the city of Nashville and good luck to you and the Tennessee Lookout. Thank you thank very you, much. Karina, thank you for having me. Thank you, Michael. Nice to meet you, Holly. Good luck to you. We, uh, we honor you, journalists. We, we honor criminal defense attorneys. There you go. The magic in heaven. Thanks for listening to Primetime Crime, the podcast. Follow us on Facebook at Primetime Crime and on Instagram and Twitter at Primetime Crime underscore. Post your comments and tell us what true crime stories you'd like to hear about. Subscribe to Primetime Crime on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Thanks a lot.